This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, we check in with Trent Palmer's lawyer. And the FAA's acting administrator, Billy Nolan, is leaving his post. Textron scores a win against drone maker DJI. Garmin database updates go wireless, but just for some models. Finally, Errol Friedrichshafen, it happened. We were there. We're going to talk about it. Ian, are you ready to do some hangar talk? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, counterpack final 132.4. Turn right, turn right, turn right. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest is Andrew King. He's a barnstormer. Amazing those guys are still around, and I were there too for this one, right? I was there, and uh, tip of the hat to Michelle Walker and Josh Cochran on the video team, and also Julie Walker. We met Andrew in Virginia at his home base next to a Travel Air bi-wing aircraft that he has, and he is a cool guy, and you're right. He barnstorms around the country. Amazing. That's great. Okay, so looking forward to that in a few minutes. First, we'll chat about the news. We talked last time, of course, everybody's been talking about the Trent Palmer case, not just because he's YouTube famous, but because there seems to be some implications for all of us uh, who fly. And so we chatted with Trent Palmer's lawyer, Alyssa Cobb did. And that's exactly what he said, that there are some implications here for all pilots that we all kind of need to be aware of. You know, Ian, the thing is that landing, or if you were going to overfly a field at a short uh, altitude and then decide not to land, like a balk landing, might cause trouble for us, that is you and me, because it puts pilots in an impossible decision, according to our lawyer at AOPA. Yeah. And that, that's the uh, 91.119 rule on minimum safe altitude. And it was recently interpreted to put a 500-foot bubble around the aircraft. And I believe that is the key to this case. Yeah. So I think, you know, most of us are familiar with that reg, right? We learn it very early on. We know that if it's a congested area, it's 1,000 feet. Uh-huh. And if it's non-congested, 500 the key, apparently, because you, if you recall, Trent did some, I think, at least one low, low pass, pass correct. in order to examine the strip because he thought he might land there. So he was evaluating in the strip. A in a neighborhood, residential neighborhood, right. which we must point out. Right. So the, the case, I think, hinges not only on the fact that he flew low, but that he didn't actually land because the reg says as necessary as something that's like for the purpose of landing. And because he didn't land, they're interpreting it to be that he just did a low pass and flew on by. And so it's essentially his word of, hey, I was going to land versus, you know, the witnesses saying, well, he just did a low pass. I agree with you, Ian. And that uh, that also the 91.113A, is, which is the careless and reckless reg, 
you know, could come into play because you could say that that was endangering somebody or property, uh, yeah. which we which we talked about a while back with Martha Lunkin when she flew under that bridge. Yeah, two, that's two or right. three things came into play. The one, she didn't have the 500 foot buffer. And as I mentioned back, way back then, you know, what if someone was inspecting the bridge, which they often do in that situation, mm-hmm. and you didn't see the human, then you're putting the human in, in, in place. But our lawyers, even back then, said that no, it, the bridge itself would be put sort of in peril. So yeah, uh, I think right. you got those two things going on. But Ian, I, I want to bring something else up. You know, at AOPA, we do some formation flying, and our pilots and safety pilots are are trained. Uh, we've got uh, courses for that. There's the FAST course that folks could get signed off on and things like that. So how, where does this formation flying come into there? Because 91.111 is another regulation. It talks about formation flying, and there are some exceptions mm-hmm. for flying close to other aircraft. Because otherwise, when our aircraft lands, say, on, on a runway, you're the second aircraft. You're, you're both going to uh, get breakfast. And now, all of a sudden, since there's an aircraft that's going to be within 500 feet of you, it might even be on the ground, now you're imperiling that aircraft. So I'm just confused about this. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you're right. The the RIC 119 does put a 500-foot bubble, as you said, around the airplane. I guess, to me, you know, you have to look at it. I mean, humans, inter- you know, interpret these regs, right? And right. so there's always going to be cases where... I don't want to call them exceptions so much, but like, you know, it, the circumstances matter. So obviously formation flying is uh-huh. allowed. There's regs that talk about how to do it safely and, and appropriately. The military does it all the time. The FAA knows that. They know that civilians do it all the time. They, you know, they give waivers for these things at air shows. So like, I think I wouldn't worry so much about formation flying, especially if it's done safely under the regs, I would say. The 500-foot bubble, I wouldn't say applies. To me, it's more, you know, Trent's situation... To me, look at helicopters, right? Helicopters, they routinely land off airport. They are taught, and Trent brought this up, that the FAA, even when they talk about backcountry ops, people are taught to do these inspection passes. Oh, yeah. And so the implication is if you do an inspection pass and you don't like what you see and you just do a low approach and fly off, that you would somehow be violating the regulations because you have decided not to land when really that's the safer option. So I, I agree with you on that. I was thinking about landing when I got the tripacer, I was going to land on a sandy strip that was on the Pacific Ocean yet. And I called the Washington state of Washington uh, aviation division and got the 411 on that. You know, there would have could have been driftwood there. There could have been mm. these uh, these it was like crab season. And so mm. it could have been crabs. It could have been it could have been clam season. Razor clams were out there. And of course, it could be someone a human fishing, you know, yeah. uh, near there. So the point was, you kind of do need to to perform a low pass to determine if there's something that's going to damage your aircraft, mm-hmm. and then you could fly off if it looks like it would damage your aircraft. Or yeah. in the in that case, maybe the sand was too soft, you know, or you could you could tell it wasn't hard packed, something like that. Yeah. So I think you know, again, humans interpret these things, right? So. Obviously, we're all worried about this and how they might interpret this in the future because it does give, if, if the case holds up, which the lawyer thinks it will, he does think that, you know, he's like, well, we, he doesn't feel great about their their chances, I think. But the ultimately, he could then use that in future cases as evidence that, you know, hey, uh, the NTSB and FAA have interpreted it this way. But common sense prevails, right? I mean, if you're 
you know, scoping out a backcountry strip in the middle of a wilderness area, that's something a lot different than flying over a subdivision in somebody's house and, you know, having okay. 500 feet to land in their backyard, right? I mean, those are two very different things. Okay, so I see your point on that. And uh, and I do think that it could cause trouble for the rest of us <laughs> uh, even still. So really, it's important to keep, uh, to keep up with this. And uh, thank you for explaining the, uh, the f- exception for formation flights, because I was really worried about that. You know, no person may operate an aircraft in formation flight except by arrangement with the pilot in command of each aircraft in the formation, which sounds like the magic gold golden ticket for that one. Yeah. So go on to YouTube, AOPA Pilot Video Channel, and then really the title of the video says it all. We talk with Trent Palmer's lawyer. Check that out. He'll give you the full scoop on what's going on. All right, David, speaking of the FAA, it has been suffering under, we've gone through the various iterations of the administrator and getting an administrator confirmed. Billy Nolan has been the acting administrator, and he has now said he will be stepping away. And this is prior to a, an administrator being uh, named. Right. So Billy Nolan, who has been the acting administrator for quite some time now, said that he's going to leave when a new nominee to lead the FAA is named sometime this summer. Now, so what does that mean for us? Well, right now, the FAA doesn't have a permanent uh, leader. Mm-hmm. I guess ever since Steve Dixon yeah, you know, stepped, stepped down. down and, yep. uh, and that's been a, quite a while now. And Billy Nolan has been the acting head for a little while. The, a couple of the folks that were in the hopper to be nominated took their name out of the running. Mm-hmm. So right now, it's sort of a vacant position. And I'm wondering what is going to happen as far as, like, the FAA is still going to run. It's not going away. It's not going to implode or anything like that. But the the face of the FAA, and there are important changes that are coming up. So with no face of the FAA and potentially important general aviation changes that are on the horizon, it's a real problem. Yeah, it definitely is. Now, just in the last week, one name has been floated that uh, I won't say uh, I know one way or the other is accurate. So I'm not going to say that there's truth to the rumors or that there's not truth because I don't know. But it's Mike Whitaker, who was uh, an FAA executive during the Obama administration and a private pilot because he became a pilot when he worked for the FAA. That's good news because someone who understands general aviation is important. And that was one of the knocks against Phil Washington, who was a previous nominee, although he had a lot of experience in transportation, but none really in aviation from a participant standpoint. That's right. From a pilot standpoint. Yeah. So uh, we'll keep you updated as we know more. But yeah, lots of uh, a definite need for some consistent uh, leadership there at the FAA. All right. Textron. I got to say, I didn't even know this was going on. You pointed this out. It was a good find. Textron has apparently sued and won against DJI, which is, I think, a big win. It's a $280 million verdict. It is. And, you know, DJI is, uh, to use an older phrase, they're the Mac daddy of the the drone world. (laughs) Yeah. You know, DJI started consumer drones quite some time ago. And that when the big drone craze was happening, I want to say 2016, 2017, they're right at the forefront of that. But they apparently swiped some technology from Textron, yes. and Textron was unhappy about that, infringing uh, DJI, infringing on Textron's patents. And so this is a, a pretty good win for Textron, the makers of Cessna, Beechcraft, and other models. Mm-hmm. It's, it's astounding to me that, that Textron would sue DJI, because DJI is a huge company as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So... 
It's a funny thing, DJ, in their statement, they said, Textron is a military helicopter company. DJI is a civilian drone company. No commonality exists between the technologies, which I think is funny because that's, of course, we know Except not. Except for how you control the yeah, drones not true and at how all. Yeah. they can fly <laughs> and how they avoid bumping into other yeah. structures. So the they don't, there's not, this is a writer's story. They don't go into a ton of detail about what's going on exactly, but apparently there were many types of technologies, including automatic hovering capabilities that basically DJI was found to have infringed upon. So that's good for Textron, good for them for, you know, defending their patents and, and pulling through there. It is. And the other thing to kind of throw into the mix here, just to remind people that, you know, the U.S. federal government is now forbidden to use DJI drones right now. So the U.S. Department of Defense banned Americans from investing in DJI and other Chinese companies last October, the Reuters story says, based on alleged ties to the Chinese military, which, mm. you know, we're always afraid of secrets being stolen, things like that. Yeah. So, but as consumers, we can still buy them and use them, right? Yeah, we can. In fact, yeah. I tried to use one just the other day in the Bahamas, but uh, I was too close to some uh, airspace, so I wasn't able to lift off. But hmm. yeah, consumers can do it. But if you're a, a government agency, you're, you're not supposed to use DJI or Chinese technology for sure. Interesting. Okay. And we'll be right back. Hey, David, I got a riddle for you. How can you upgrade your next flight without upgrading your airplane? I think upgrading the pilot would be the first clue for that one. <laughs> <laughs> the guy between the headsets, huh? Yeah. That's right. <laughs> All right. That's not what I'm talking about, but I'll give you a clue. It has ADSB traffic and weather, Sirius XM weather and entertainment, no wires, and it works with ForeFlight and Garmin Pilot. Oh, Ian, I know what that is. It's the Garmin GDL 52 Sirius XM portable weather receiver. Yeah, that, that's right. Okay. And now, believe it or not, the Garmin GDL 52 comes with a three-month trial of Sirius XM aviation weather and a very special limited time $400 rebate. Learn more about all that this receiver can do and the limited time $400 rebate by visiting sporties.com slash GDL 52. Hey, speaking of new technology, Garmin has expanded. We just talked about this actually where it came out at Sun and Fun just for a couple of high-end models. And now they've expanded it to many models, the Plain Sync technology, which allows you most importantly of all things to update your databases remotely. Well, some of us, Ian, can rem remotely update our- <laughs> Don't be bitter, don't be bitter. <laughs> so my, my Garmin 250XL is still a very cumbersome process of taking a special card reader and a laptop and you know mating them together and taking the database card mm -hmm. out of the 250XL, which is a similar process, Ian, for the ubiquitous Garmin 430s and four and 530s that are out there. 530s. And so, yeah. Um, yeah, but I would say the newer technology Garmin boxes, you can now, you know, do it wirelessly. I think that is cool. We need to mention that it's not free. Subscriptions are 10 bucks a month for the Wi-Fi only service and 30 bucks for LTE support and $45 a month for worldwide LTE, which I think if you add up for that kind of money, that's 45 bucks a month, that's like five, over 500 a year. So it's pretty significant. And of course you do need obviously whatever's in the panel. So it'll work with a number of their modern navigators. Right. And, uh, you know, PFDs, but you also need the GDL 60, which is four grand to be able to do this. But you know, for people who have more money than time, this is a great thing because... It's a lot easier to do. 
Yeah, you can sit there at home, you press the upload button or whatever, the thing updates the databases. When you get to the airplane, it needs a few minutes, I think, because you turn on ship's power and then it'll basically blow it out to the to the database, you know, to the rest of the navigators and everything else. Yeah. But you don't have to sit there, like you said, with a laptop and everything else trying to do this. So yeah, yeah you don't, it's for people who are really busy who want to manage their airplanes remotely. This is really good. I think this is like step one, though, in what ultimately we want, which is like remote engine management technology and things like that. Yeah, which we have seen from other manufacturers. Yeah. Uh, we talked about that not long ago. But you're right, Ian, the GTN boxes, the 650s, the 700, the 750s. GI and you know what is cool? That's what I was going to bring up. The GI 275 can be updated remotely. I think that is cool. Yeah, that is so cool. That, there's, that's a piece of equipment that... You could put in your Cessna 172 XP, or I could put it in the Tri-Pacer. Yep, exactly. Hey, we want to finish off with Aero Friedrichshafen, and that's because it's not a show that a lot of Americans go to, but it's a big show, I think, in terms of technology. Tom Horn goes every year. This is a show he likes to keep tabs on. He does a great job covering it. And this is a show you'll find everything from solar-powered to hybrid to hydrogen, obviously, battery electric, all sorts of stuff. And this year, I think, again, did not disappoint. A lot of cool stuff was displayed there. And one of my favorites, David, is this JMB. Now, I think they were there last year. They've got this, what looks like essentially a little baby Lancer, uh-huh. a urban engine on it, 160 shaft horsepower. And to me, like, this thing is the future. I love this. It's so cool. It can burn as few as five gallons an hour. You can run Avgas, Jet A, whatever. So for me, this is like the highlight. This is the ultimate. Super cool stuff. It is the ultimate little baby turbine. Now, I'm going to throw it right out here so folks understand. That's a $400,000 airplane <laughs> uh, as it sits right yeah. there. So let's let's keep that in mind. But that is interesting technology. And that was really the, the tip of the iceberg out there at Aero. Mm-hmm. There were other really interesting technologies out there. You know, we talked a little bit about the Bristel company, yeah, and they came out with sort of like it was like a electric, the H55 electric propulsion system was designed to power a Bristel B, as in Bravo 23, Energic or Energic. It's a two-seat trainer, mm-hmm. and it, there might be repercussions for this, where that this engine, this motor, it's not engine, yep, it's a motor, motor yep. might fit in other aircraft. So to me, that electronic technology might be really cool to keep an eye on too. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know the lowest power output of the Rolls-Royce that's going in, let's say, like the bi-aerospace airplanes. I, I would think you would want to work with just a you know a bigger manufacturer that's already kind of ahead, but it's cool that they've made this. Yeah, they're working with this Swiss company to be able to put that in, so that's really neat. Lots of other amazing stuff. Solar, which we never really hear anything about. There's this company, this guy, he's produced this airplane. It's essentially kind of a motor glider type airplane that has these giant solar panels on the wings uh you can have a trailer that has solar power that hooks up to it this is the electra yeah the electra solar uh, what a uh, design by electra trainer yeah. that's an interesting concept ian you know having a solar powered airplane and a, a nearby gen, you know electric generator a trailer if you will you know, but that's designed to fly. If I, I want to say that's only designed to fly about an hour altogether, which gives you 30 minutes in the air and 30 minutes, 30 minutes buffer. Yeah. You know, or 30 minutes, you know, of uh, of FAA required extra quote unquote fuel. Yeah, get downtime. But yeah. but that is super cool to throw that in a trailer, go to the airport, do some training. Why not? 
That is neat. And one of the cool things that we don't really spend a lot of time talking about, but I think is always kind of working in the background here, and I, ultimately I think will impact all of us here in the States, is some of these European ultralight rules. So, for example, this electro trainer, I mean, this is something that in the States would have to be a experimental, you know, probably amateur okay. belt, which, you know, from a technology standpoint is not feasible for a lot of people. But in Europe, this thing's already certified. It's certified under Germany's ultralight rules, and you can buy it today. It sells for about $220,000. And ultimately, the hope is that some of these technologies will lead to some expanded LSA type certifications in the States. Right. And you know what? I need to make a correction. I was just reading uh, Tom's article a little bit further. This particular aircraft that we're talking about, the Electra Trainer, has a maximum flight endurance of 2.5 hours. So I, I might have been mix, mixing up my models here. Yeah. The airplane, uh, like you said, it, it can serve as a glider tug and comes with a trailer <laughs> with the solar cells. Yeah. But no, let's talk about the price. It's a 220000 220. plus yeah. 44000 for the trailer. Yeah. So I apologize uh, for misstate, misstating you that. You know what? Given the technology, not so bad. I don't know. Expensive, but... Well, let's talk about another 200-some-odd-thousand-dollar aircraft, Ian. The, the Slovenian-built Go-Get Air G750, mm-hmm. which made its first appearance in Aero. And that is a pretty interesting aircraft itself. Now, look, this one is only 200, quote-unquote, only, only. $260,000. But the airplane can be ordered with a, a Rotax 912 IS engine mm-hmm. or the 914 or 141 horsepower Rotex 915 IS engine. It's an interesting aircraft. It's in the, it's, now it's in the experimental category overseas. So we'll have to see what happens uh, you know, if it can come to the US. It has a higher max takeoff weight than what we currently have as in the LSA range here in the States. So that's one of the problems. Yeah. But uh, useful load, 770 pounds, very cool airplane. Yep, yep, so this is all these sort of European, quote unquote, European ultralights that, that we hope we can take advantage of once we get uh, some expanded LSA rules and some certification reform. So yeah, this one, it's cool. I mean, you know, it flies faster as 138 knots, but still stalls slowly. So easy to handle takeoffs and landings, which is important. And the other thing in, in Europe, at least you can fly IFR with it, which is really nice. So how cool would that be to be able to, uh, in the States to fly IFR in an LSA and that particular airplane, uh, another thing that's an advantage for this aircraft, and I don't see why more airplanes don't have a ballistic recovery parachute system. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. To allow weight for it. Plus it's got a great name, right? Go get air. I love it, man. And when they introduce it, a training package comes with it. And a 500 flight hour spinner to tail warranty. I mean, you know, that's, that's not bad. Yeah, well, yeah. Whoever heard of that? So yeah, that'd right. be very cool. <laughs> yeah. All right. So from the tip of the, you know, tip of the spear technology uh-huh. all the way back to the barnstorming days, Andrew King, really cool guy, amazing career. So cool that people actually get to do this still. And really glad you guys caught up with him. is Andrew King and I'm a barnstormer. That's number one. I also swing dance and I play soccer and do some other things but as far as aviation goes uh, barnstormer mechanic ferry pilot 
jack of all trades a little bit, as so long as it's old. Your, your background. So you said before that you grew up at the old Rhinebeck Aerodrome. How would somebody grow up there? What, what well, my dad and my uncle were both school teachers. My uncle taught art. My dad was a shop teacher. And they both ended up, they were from Western New York, but ended up moving to the Hudson Valley. And my uncle lived in Hyde Park, which is not far from the Aerodrome. They both liked airplanes ever since they were little kids. And so my uncle found out about Rhinebeck and got involved right in the early days, in the early 60s, there, or middle 60s, I guess. And then my dad moved to Nyack, New York, down closer to New York City and taught in uh, Terrytown. And my uncle naturally introduced him to Cole Palin and Rhinebeck and the Aerodrome and things. And so I was born in 62. And this was, you know, mid-60s, 64, 65, 66. And so they started getting involved in flying the airplanes and, and working on airplanes and building airplanes. And I was a five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old kid there. You know. Describe to me what the aerodrome is. Rhinebeck, the old Rhinebeck Aerodrome, was founded by Cole Palin in the late 50s. 59 is the official date. It's a, it's a living museum, is what they say, which is really true. It's a living museum. They have airplanes from the pioneer era, 1908, 1909, all the way up through World War II, training biplanes and stuff, so uh, into the 40s. And they do air shows on weekends during the summertime. And it's one of the few places in the world where you can go and see eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 antique airplanes fly on one day in one air show. Uh, there's the Shuttleworth in England, there's La Ferte Lay in France, there's a place in New Zealand, but there's, Basically, you can count on one hand the kind of the number of places that are similar to Rhinebeck in the world. What's the first airplane you flew in? That's actually an interesting story. I, I think I don't remember, but they used to at Rhinebeck. They used to hop rides in a in a Kinner Bird, uh, 1930 31 uh, Kinner Bird biplane uh, built in Brooklyn, New York. And I've been told that when we were little kids, we used to hang around. And when, they, when Cole Palin used to fly the rides in this bird, which is still at Rhinebeck in the museum, hasn't flown in 20 or 30 years, but it's still in the museum at Rhinebeck. And when he got done, according to what I've been told, me and my brother and my cousins would run out and say, take us, take us. And Cole would sometimes put us in and take us for a ride. And so my understanding is that my first ride was with Cole Palin in the Kinderbird in the Cheyenne County bird that's still in the museum up there. That was my first airplane ride. And then my dad bought a Piper Cub. He learned to fly in a Piper Cub. I think I was five years old when my dad soloed. I can remember when he came home and said that he had soloed. And so he, he, they grew up in a poor family, he and my uncle. He couldn't learn to fly till he was in his 30s. So, but he bought a Piper Cub and I started flying the Piper Cub as soon as I could see over the windowsill. As soon as I was tall enough to see over the windowsill, I would do the stick and I couldn't reach the rudder. He would do the rudders and stuff. And so, you know, I don't know what I was, 10 years old or whatever it was. And then, I actually, I, I soloed before I got my driver's license when I was 16 in Hampton, New Hampshire. They had Piper Cubs and Aronka Champs in the flying school up there. So I went to Hampton so I could learn to fly and solo in a, in a Piper Cub. And in fact, they still have the Cub that I soloed in, in at Hampton. It has like 14,000 hours on it. But so I soloed in a Piper Cub, did my cross country work in an Aronka Champ. My dad had a Cessna 140 that I did my radio work and that kind of stuff in to get my license. I went to Parks College in St. Louis, uh, part of St. Louis University, and got my A&P right out of high school. Got my commercial rating when I was out there, and then started doing air shows as soon as I came back. So I, I think I flew my first air show at Rhinebeck when I was uh, 20 years old, I believe. Antique aircraft, are we talking prior to World War I? What's the, and, and then how many and what different types have you flown? Well, 
the reason really I think that I'm more interested in the older airplanes, I always tell people pre-1950. Pre-1950 is kind of my cutoff. There's a, there's a lot of late 40s airplanes that are pretty cool airplanes, Swifts and uh, Cessna 195s and things. But I, I, the reason that I'm more interested in that stuff, I think is because I like the history behind it. I like the, the pilots and, and the, the things that they did, the airmail. You know, there's a lot of really interesting stories in the history. And I think that's one of the reasons I gravitated so much to the airplanes from that time period is the stories behind them. The, I, I met some of the World War I pilots at Rhinebeck when they were still alive. And I've talked to a lot of interesting people that used to barnstorm. Johnny Miller, who was a famous auto gyro pilot. And so that's why I gravitated towards, I think, the antique airplanes. I, I, I read a lot as a kid. I read a lot of books, a lot of airplane books. And so I just was really into the history and wanted to, I wanted to know what it was like to fly an airmail airplane, you know, or fly a Fokker triplane and be in combat and, you know, the closest I can do. I tell people, I want people to think I'm the biggest liar in the nursing home. I want, oh, Mr. King's talking about flying Fokker triplanes again and working on the Wright Brothers airplanes and stuff. And I've done it, you know. And so that's kind of my goal is to be the, thought of as the biggest liar in the nursing home. But so that's why I gravitated to it. I've flown 156 different types. I purposely try to not stretch that out. Like I've flown Lycoming Cubs and Continental Cubs and Franklin Cubs. I put them all in one. I, I, I don't try to stretch it out. Some people, you know, but uh, so I, I pretty legitimately have flown 156 different types of airplanes. The, the Booker Youngman that I, we were looking at before that I have is my favorite of all the 156. People always ask me what was the worst one. And I always tell them before I answer the question, I want you to know I loved every minute of it. But, you know, there was a, the, the 1911 Curtis Pusher was probably the worst airplane, uh, worst flying airplane that I ever Why? flew. And, well, it just, uh, I mean, it was 1911 and they didn't know what they were doing and it was just a terrible, terrible airplane. You know, it's a great big box kite and you sit out in the middle of it. Uh, a friend of mine built a replica for the 100th anniversary of naval aviation in 2011 and we flew that thing. I mean, I flew it around the Statue of Liberty. We flew it from New York to Oshkosh. I mean, it took a week, you know, to do it. We trucked it to Pensacola for the Navy Blue Angels homecoming show in November. Then we flew it to Sun and Fun the next spring and then flew it to Virginia. From I mean, so I, I don't know, I might have put 70, 80 hours on it. It was, the, the rudder was fairly normal, was in the slipstream. The ailerons were terribly heavy and ineffective. The pitch was no feel at all. It didn't feel like it was connected to anything, but it was extraordinarily sensitive and effective. So you had no feedback, but it was very pitch sensitive. I told people if you flew it for more than a half an hour and the wind was more than about seven knots, you were scared at some point. That was, you know, if it was dead calm, it was kind of enjoyable. But if there was any wind at all, a Piper Cub, the wake turbulence from a Piper Cub would almost knock it out of the sky. It was just a terrible, but, but again, I loved every minute of it, you know. And uh, your favorite is this. And the Youngman, the Booker Youngman is my favorite. It's, it's just a very pleasant flying airplane. It was designed in 1934, 35 in Germany. They were so popular in Europe, they built them in Spain and Switzerland and Hungary and the Czech, Czechoslovakia. They're, they're still have a very fervent following in, in various places in Europe and in the United States. There's a Booker Club and it's just, it can do pretty much all the loops and rolls that I want to do. And it's just a very pleasant flying airplane. The controls are very well harmonized. Uh, it, it lands pretty easy. And what do you um, do with that airplane? What is your time spent with it? Do yeah. you go on rides? Or I tr you know, the Traveler and the Booker, you know, not so much the Taylorcraft anymore, but the biplanes, because people like the biplanes. Everybody that works behind the front desk at Culpeper pretty much has had a ride in one of my biplanes. I, if somebody comes to work here, I think that's the first thing they tell them, hey, you're going to get a biplane ride, <laughs> you know? But I try to 
to do that again, try to kind of pay it forward because I've flown the 156 different types and I don't know how many different airplanes, probably double that of numbers of airplanes. And I've only owned five or six or seven maybe in my life. So I realize that there has been a lot of generosity given to me from other people. I mean, the opportunities that I've had, of a, a lot of them have resulted from people like Cole Palin at Rhinebeck, Bud Dake in St. Louis, Denny Trone in Wisconsin, let me fly. He had a bunch of antique airplanes, antique biplanes with Hispano Suiza engines and always very rare airplanes. And he used to let me hop rides in them. I'd go out and he'd put gas in them and I'd just take people for rides at the flying. And I try to appreciate what, I, what I've been given. And, and so I do like giving rides. The traveler I sell rides in, but I do also, I give a lot of comp rides in it too to different people. And the Booker is my fun airplane. Uh, we took it, I flew it to lunch a couple days ago down in Fredericksburg. Uh, but I, I do try to take a lot of people for rides in it and let people see a loop and a roll and kind of experience that. So one of the things you were saying was that when people fly with you on these rides and stuff, they're always amazed about how to fly it. So can you describe, because it is so nose high and you're back there and you've got all this stuff in front of you. Can you describe how it is to fly these particular aircraft? Yeah, it, you know, I mean, it's, it's a matter of perspective, of course. If you compare it to a 172, the visibility forward is much better. I mean, it's just, and of course, I grew up in flying Piper Cubs and so started in airplanes that were similar to this where you can't see very much in front of you. There's something, you know, we talked about the history and how if you try to have a whole perspective on the history of the 1920s and the 1930s, you know, there was, a, there was a lot of negatives in society as well as the positives. A lot of discoveries were being made and advancements were being made and you have to balance that off against some of the things, other things that were happening in society. But there's, in a biplane, there's just a visceral thrill, I think, from just being at a thousand feet and watching the earth go by and having the wind in your face. And the, the history almost doesn't matter at that point. It's just something fun about being in a biplane. So, but you're an AMP and you have been historically know all about these airplanes. Why were they designed so nose high? What, what was the theory behind all of that at the time? Well, it's interesting, you know, there's always compromises. Any aircraft design, there's compromises. They, they wanted to have the biplanes. Uh, the biplanes are easier to trust than a monoplane to make them strong. The, probably the biggest thing about it is the pilot almost always sits in the back in a biplane. And people, sometimes the passengers get up and they try to get in the back. No, no, you're sitting in the front. And the main reason for it is just the balance because the passengers are on the center of gravity. So whether there were passengers or not, it didn't matter as far as weight and balance went. And so that it was planned to always have weight in the pilot's seat. So the pilot sits in the back and that was more of a primary concern for them than seeing where you were going. It just, that was just the way it was. They just, they didn't think seeing straight ahead was that important. It was, uh, it was more of a design feature of the airplane to have the pilot in the back. I'm not sure how much this played into it also, but if you're gonna wreck an airplane, one of these is probably the best airplane to wreck because there's a lot between you and the front of the airplane. There's, there's a lot that has to crunch before it gets to you. And so the really the old biplanes tend to be more crashworthy than uh, than modern airplanes. So what is it that you really love about this generation of airplanes or like why does it mean so much to you? Well, the reason really that I, that I like the 1920s and 1930s airplanes is the the idea of living history of you know, experiencing, I, I've been in an open cockpit biplane when it was 25 degrees out over the mountains of Pennsylvania, stomping my feet to try to keep warm. You read in the books, they say, I stomp my feet. It doesn't work, you know? At Rhinebeck, I was at Rhinebeck a, a few months ago and they got a new airplane there, a Bristol fighter. And I sat in it just to see what it was like sitting in it. And, and Clay Hammond, the chief pilot came up and he said, do you want to fly it? 
yeah, of course I do, you know. And so I flew it and that was very interesting because the thing between the history books and the reality, you always wonder. And so I, I flew the Bristol fighter and the Bristol fighter had a reputation that it was equal with the single seat fighters. That is completely not true. That thing could not hardly get out of its way. And there's no way with a Fokker D7 that you shouldn't be able to shoot down a Bristol fighter. But that's the reputation. The history books say that. I don't know. I've talked to other guys that have flown them and they say the same thing. Yeah, I don't think that thing could take a Fokker D7 on. So that kind of thing is interesting. Kind of. So I, when I read a book now, I have more of an appreciation of when those original pilots, what they were doing and what they were feeling. I know how cold it can be in an airplane flying over snow in a biplane and stuff. And so, so that's a lot of the draw for me is kind of experiencing the history. Now, you know, we're a lot safer. I can land and get on my cell phone and, you know, call an Uber and go to the hotel. But still, I, I do understand history more from having kind of been able to live it. So that era of time is obviously very special to you. Right. What, what stands out that makes it so, so appealing? The, the appealing thing about the 1920s or, or kind of the old days before World War II, one, one of the things that appeals to me, like when I go cross country and people are always amazed at this, I use a paper chart and a compass. Uh, I tell people that if I'm going over 100 miles an hour, I'll use a GPS, but most of the very few of the things I fly go over 100 miles an hour. But I, I have, again, I have been, I have flown pre-1950 airplanes in all 50 United States and most of the provinces of Canada with a chart and a compass. Uh, I'm supposed to go to California in a couple weeks and get a Waco, a 1930 Waco, and fly it to Illinois. I'll have my paper charts and my compass, and and I follow that. And so the point being that one of the appeals of that era is people had to rely on themselves. There was no magenta line. You know, if you got somewhere, it was because you had the skill to navigate to that spot. You know, there was there was more self-reliance, I think, and maybe more diversity of skills or something, something there was, it, it took something to accomplish something then. Uh, not to say that everything is easy nowadays and there are different challenges nowadays, but, but basic raw stuff like taking an airplane with no electrical system and no radio and anything and flying it from here to California, you know, very few people do that anymore. And the challenge of doing it, I, I like knowing the name of every town that goes by and the rivers and the, you know, lakes and stuff. And, and I just, the process of flying cross country appeals to me. Most of my, I have about 4,400 hours and probably 2,500 of them are cross country. Who are your luminaries of that time period that you almost wish you could have met? When I was a kid, Lindbergh was, was one of my heroes. Jimmy Doolittle, uh, you know, Jimmy- People always jump from Lindbergh to Doolittle. Why? What is it about those two that are similar and yet what happened in between? We're all right. pilots in between. Lindbergh had the big public name. I mean, a lot of general public people know who Charles Lindbergh was from flying across the Atlantic. It made such a big splash with such a big event in history. Doolittle, I think, is more of a pilot's person if you were to ask me who I thought probably the best pilot in the history of flying was, I would probably say Jimmy Doolittle. Jimmy Doolittle did the first blind flight. He did the Tokyo raid. He won the Pulitzer Prize for racing or racing the land planes. I, did you, I can't remember if he won the Schneider Trophy or not. He won the Bendix Trophy for cross-country racing. Uh, you know, as I say, the first blind flight, the first outside loop. I mean, he did so much diverse stuff. Doolittle did so many firsts that he really advanced aviation probably more than Lindbergh even did. So, so, and, and I mean, and to any pilot, Lindbergh and Doolittle are obviously our big, our big names. Is uh, that who you'd have dinner with? If you could pluck somebody from oh the boy. sky and say, come back? It probably would be Jimmy Doolittle. Probably, yeah, yeah. I got to know Johnny Miller a little bit, if you know who Johnny Miller was. Johnny Miller was born in, I think, 1904 in Poughkeepsie. 
and he used to come to Rhinebeck. He grew up in this, I interviewed him when he was 103. We were making this documentary about this barnstorming trip that we do every summer, going to this farm in Indiana, and they, they wanted to try to find a living barnstormer, and he was pretty much the last living barnstormer, and he was 100, 103, 102, something like that. We went to his house in Poughkeepsie. He was living in the house in Poughkeepsie where he lived since 1915, and this was 2006 or seven or something like that. And I don't know, but so he talked about a barnstormer came to town and he helped the guy barnstorm and the barnstormer left his Jenny there over the winter and said, fix it up and I'll come back and teach you to fly next spring when you're 15 or 16 or something. The guy never came back. So Johnny fixed the airplane up and he said, well, he said, I taught myself to fly. He said, I had a book. The Aeroplane Speaks by Captain Horatio Barber of the Royal Flying Corps. Now this is 1923 or something like that. He said, yeah, it's in the bookcase right there, 10 feet away, was the book that he taught himself to fly with in 1923. And uh, he, so he became a barnstormer. He became a very famous autogyro pilot and is claimed to be the first person to loop the autogyro, which is in dispute, but he was the first person to fly coast to coast in an autogyro. And then in 2009, I ended up doing the test flights and taking to Oshkosh a 1932 Pitcairn autogyro that he had flown back in the 30s. And unfortunately, there were two people that had flown autogyros that were still living at that point, Johnny Miller and Steve Pitcairn, whose father, I guess it was, owned the company. Both of them died less than a year before I flew the autogyro. And it was too bad because after I flew it, then I had questions. And the, both the guys that could answer them were both died less than a year. Neither one of them lived long enough to see it fly. But the, and, and the Pitcairn Autogyro, really, I should talk about because that is the, probably the pinnacle of my antique airplane flying. It was so unique. I mean, it's the only one flying in the world. It's a, it's a fixed rotor autogyro. It has little wings because the rotor is fixed. So you had to have ailerons. So it had little wings with ailerons on them so you could bank and stuff. But it, it, people that knew nothing about airplanes, I tell people it was the only magic airplane I ever flew because people that knew nothing about airplanes were fascinated by it because clearly something's different about it. I mean, it has a great big rotor, but it has wings and it has an engine on the front and a tail like a normal airplane. And people were just fascinated by it. I flew it at Oshkosh at the end of the day. We were trying to wait for the wind to go down and the airport closed at eight. And I, I think I flew till 8.07, and when I landed, I heard him say on the radio, okay, it's 8 o'clock, the airport's closed. You know, I mean, everybody wanted to see it fly, but I flew it at Oshkosh, and when I taxied back in, I could hear people on the crowd line yelling and screaming and cheering and stuff. I mean, I could hear them from the cockpit with the engine running. It just, it, it, the Pitcairn Autogyro had an effect on people. It really, as I say, even people didn't know about airplanes uh, were fascinated by it. So we've so. talked a lot about the past. What do you think the future of aviation and, and our pilot population and, you know, the next generation, what's coming? That is another good question. Uh, the future of aviation, it, it, it's, I th it's gravitating more towards the, obviously the glass airplanes, the modern airplanes, the, the vintage airplanes, uh, it's been for a while. I'm, I'm 60 and sometimes I'm almost the youngest guy to fly in. Uh, young people are not as interested in biplanes. The, the vintage airplane world, I, I'm worried about what it'll look like in 10, 10 or 15 years. The prices have already started to go down on the airplanes. They're just, the interest is waning in, in vintage airplanes, I'm afraid. And so an airplane like this justifies its existence because uh, I give rides for money in it. So it kind of justifies its existence. But there are a lot of airplanes like this that are in hangars that haven't flown in five, six, seven, ten 10 years because the guys got old and lost their medical and 
there are a lot of airplanes like that around the country. The airline pilot shortage, as you know, has finally arrived that they've been predicting for years and years and years. And I mean, I think they're going to end up like the, some of the European airlines do where they have academies in Arizona and you get some kid out of high school and you take them from scratch and make an airline pilot out of them. That's in a sense, a good way to do it. In another sense, I, I always say if, if I was the king of the world, every pilot would have to solo in a glider first and then solo in a J3 Cub first, and then you can do whatever you want because then they can fly. You know, they can stick and rudder fly. And, and if something goes wrong, the problem isn't when, when everything goes right, everything's fine. When, when the stuff hits the fan, you know, Sully and the Miracle on the Hudson and stuff was a glider pilot, knew how to fly. And, and a lot of that stuff, the Gimli glider up in Canada, you know, when they, when they ran it out of fuel and had the dead stick, you know, the stuff like that that happens, you want a guy who flew gliders and Piper Cubs up there, you know, not somebody that started in a Cirrus and has never known anything else, in my opinion, and no offense to Cirrus drivers, but uh, so I think aviation is, go is going more automated, obviously, as I say, the vintage airplanes, I'm afraid, are, are being less and less popular, and uh, I, I just, I, I think it's a one-way road. I, I'm, I'm glad I was born when I was because I kind of got to see the heyday of antique airplanes and old Rhinebeck. So um, are you uh, A&P and um, are you especially for taking care of antique aircraft? Well, after I got out of high school, I went to Parks College of St. Louis University. I got my A&P license. After a few years, I got my IA, so I'm an A&P IA. I, I think one of the reasons that people like for me to ferry their airplanes is because if something breaks, I can fix it. But so I... I Enjoyed working on airplanes also, not as much. My mom said one time, oh, you like that as much as flying? No, 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 mom. If I could afford to just pay people to work on the airplanes, I would do it and just fly. But, uh, but I do enjoy working on airplanes because you do stuff with your hands and I'll spend a day and make a fixture and weld something and you get something at the end of the day you did with your hands, you know? And so there's a, there's a certain reward in having that, you know, your, your, your accomplishment for the day isn't a bunch of bits in a computer or something. It's a piece that you made that you, and your life depends on it. You know, I mean, most of the time I'm gonna test fly whatever I'm working on. So uh, I like that idea that, hey, this is serious and you better do it right and because your life is gonna depend on it. So I, I do enjoy working on airplanes. I, I have, as I say, gotten a little burned out in recent years. Uh, especially working on other people's airplanes. I still like working on my airplanes, but, uh, but I, do, I do enjoy the process of building something and creating something and having something concrete when you're done. You know, That's we the... didn't talk about um, a little bit, um, one of the things you've been doing and where, how you and I met some part was the, the, the Lindbergh plane. Did we talk about the Lindbergh plane? A little bit, maybe that I've flown into Oshkosh, a little bit maybe. Well, the Lindbergh Bird is a, is a Brunnerwinkel Kinner Bird built in 1930. It was bought new by the Lindberghs in August 1930. Charles, it had a reputation of being an easy airplane to fly, so Charles wanted to, something to teach Anne to fly in. So they bought this Kinner Bird in Brooklyn, New York. They had it at the Long Island Aviation Country Club out on Long Island and Charles taught Anne to fly. And I actually found video footage of it on this Critical Past website of the two of them walking around the airplane and climbing in and taking off. And so I, I knew of the airplane. It was over in Kentmore on the Eastern Shore of Maryland. A guy named Joe Fischera bought it in 1947. Before he could fly it, a windstorm flipped it over and smashed it up. So he spent five years fixing it, got it flying in 1952, flew it for four months, I think. The engine quit, he went in the field, went on its back, smashed it up again. He put it in storage, he was in the Air Force. 50 years later, he thought, I better start working on this thing or I'll die and it'll never get done. So he started working on it. He got it done in 2012. Uh, he lost his medical. They had a family friend come and fly it. He had, I, I believe, one ride in it and then died. 
So he, he did get one ride in it before he died. And then the airplane got damaged. They were trying to take it to an antique flying in Iowa. The airplane got damaged in Ohio. They had it repaired in Illinois. And then they were looking for somebody to fly it back from Illinois back to home in Maryland. And they were asking around. And a good friend of mine lived three doors down and said, call Andrew up. So I got a phone call. Do you want to fly the Lindbergh bird from Illinois to Maryland? And yeah, obviously, yes, I do, you know. So I went out there. I actually, I, I got a suit. I wear a suit maybe once a year, but I brought my suit out and uh, because there's a famous picture of Charles standing next to the airplane with Anne in the cockpit, kind of looking longingly at him, you know, and so we reenacted the photo with Tina Thomas at uh, Poplar Grove, Illinois. They have a nice curved roof hanger like the one in the background. So I showed up at Broadhead at the antique flying in a suit and everybody thought there must be a funeral or something. But, uh, but I flew it home to Maryland and, and then they needed somebody to take care of it, uh, an IA to do the annuals and stuff. And obviously I, I was qualified to fly it. So I've been, ever since then, I've been doing the annual inspections and flying it. Real quick, I'm sure you had some uh, harrowing moments flying all these old airplanes. Do you have any particularly notable? So uh, there's a couple. I mean, I've had a couple of weather-related incidents. You know, more when I was younger and not as smart. Uh, where I got caught in bad weather, but there was a, there was uh, the Curtis Pusher that we that I was talking about, the 1911 Curtis Pusher. We have this farm in Indiana that we visit every year, and we camp with the airplanes in the alfalfa field. And it's been on TV actually on PBS. They made a little documentary, and it, we've been doing it for 20 some years. But uh, we took the Curtis Pusher there on the way back from Oshkosh, and we were headed for Dayton. And so it was my turn to fly. Bob, the owner, and I were taking turns. We had a motorhome that went about as fast as the Curtis Pusher. So one would drive and one would fly, and you could easily catch up to the Curtis Pusher. But it was my turn to fly. And the, the farm family, good Catholic family, they have nine kids, you know, a big, happy family and everything. And so they all came out and to see the airplane. Then it was my turn to fly to Dayton. And I took off, and I flew around the pattern. And I went by, and I went to wiggle the wings at them, you know, like you do when you're, when you're leaving. And the Curtis Pusher, being a 1911 airplane, again, not very well engineered, went the, with the wheel at neutral, the cables were all tight. At full travel, they got slack. And as I rocked the wings to say goodbye and they got to full travel, a pulley jumped a cable, or a cable jumped a pulley. By miracle, as I brought the wheel back to neutral, it jammed right in neutral, the controls jammed. Now still, it's a terrible, terrible flying airplane anyway and the ailerons were jammed. And I, my first thought was, I'm gonna ruin these kids' lives now. They're gonna watch Andrew crash, you know, and it'll ruin their lives. But I found, it, because of the slackness in the cables, if I really pulled on it, I could get just enough aileron to kind of keep the wings level. And I kind of ruddered around the pattern and managed to come back and land in the, in the field. And we discovered that the cable guard was misaligned and we were able to realign it and stuff and make it so it wouldn't happen. And we, and we you know, put in our, Pilot, mental pilot's notes, don't rock the wings. That was a bad idea, you know. So that was one, I had controls jammed. The controls jamming, I think, is better than losing a control. I had a, I, I own a fourth airplane, actually, the, the $1 Pete and Paul. Uh, if, you, if you Google it, you'll find articles about it. It's, uh, it's the oldest flying Pete and Paul air camper built in 1934 in Minnesota. It's been passed around among a group of us friends. Each, each person can own it, but has to sell it to the next guy for a dollar. And so it's currently is my turn and I have the airplane, but Frank, my friend Frank in Ohio had it before me, but I used to fly it a lot and I was flying it one day and I took off and he had just rebuilt the airplane and he said, yeah, the ailerons feel funny. I don't know why. And so I got up and I turned, 
I, I normally, the wind was from the right, it's a 40 horsepower airplane, so very low power. You normally you turn into the wind, you don't want to turn downwind. But to the, to the right with trees and houses and stuff, to the left were some fields. So I turned downwind a little bit, it was kind of a quartering headwind, and thank God I did because I was on crosswind and I wiggled the stick and I felt something go thunk. I thought that's not, <laughs> that shouldn't happen. And I got up and I turned on downwind and I looked down between my legs and the control cables come up where you can see them. Up they cross and they go up into the wing and out to the control. And one of the control cables was looping like this. It, it had broken. There was a, there was a micropress splice in it inside the wing that had come apart. And it's a high wing parasol and you would think that it would have some kind of rudder stability, but it has no dihedral. And so the, the wing went down and I moved the stick and, and it's not connected. And that's a terrible feeling when it's not, as I say, at least when they're jammed, you have something to fight with. When it's not connected, it's a terrible feeling and it did nothing. And I put in a bunch of rudder and the wing came up and then the wing went down again and I put in full stick again and nothing happened. And so I'm flying along sideways like this with full rudder and it just feels like it's just about to go upside down, which would be the end, you know? And so uh, there's two runways at Barber Field in Ohio, big grass runways, and I'm coming up. I'd taken off on the north-south and I'm going north now. And I think, well, I, honestly, my, I thought about the Sioux City thing. With the, with the DC-10 when they lost all their controls and had to, because I, I, could, I could vary the rate of turn and I could vary the rate of descent, but I was turning and descending whether I liked it or not, but I could vary the rates. And so I thought if I can just hit an open space, you know, I try, I'm gonna try to hit the runway. So I, I managed to go past the east-west runway, going to the north and turning to the west. And I came around and I missed the runway by about 30 feet. And I, the wing was down so far, then I was worried that the wing was gonna hit first and it would cartwheel. And so, at the, and I was in a big slip, uh, uncoordinated of course, flying in a big slip. Just before I hit the ground, I jammed in left rudder to straighten it out so that, so that at least it would hit straight. And the wheel did hit before the wing and it hit in a bean field real hard and bounced up in the air and it, and it leveled it out. Then I was, I was at 10 feet, the wings were level, I had no airspeed, I had nothing in front of me, I was fine. And it came down and it bounced a few more times and rolled to a stop. <laughs> yeah, and that was, <laughs> but that was, that was probably the closest call I've had as, as far as, you know, they talk, like they talk about a Piper Cub as the safest airplane ever built. It will only just barely kill you. You know, you would think a Pete and Paul is a pretty benign airplane, but that's probably the closest call I've ever had in an airplane was losing the aileron control. So I love that Andrew keeps it real, right? So he's in the old airplane. He uses the old technology. He's, he's still using paper. I mean, that's how he gets from place to place, right? That's very cool. Yeah, he said if he can't do a paper a chart on his knee, uh, he's not interested in going. Mm -hmm. Low and slow, you know, less than 100 miles an hour generally. And he dresses for the part too. When he's barnstorming, he's got on leather helmet, goggles, you know, a silk scarf, that kind of thing, and really puts on a show. Nice. Uh, he's a great guy, a real feather in our cap to, to know Andrew, and we sure appreciate his time. Great. All right, David. Hey, I think that's all the time we have. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. I'm David Tealist. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangar talk and wherever you get your podcast. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.